one of the first regions in America settled by white colonizers. The history of New England is vast, deep, and dark. Join Small Town Mysteries this spooky season as we bring you a special series. Welcome to Spooky New England. Today's topic, a haunting in Connecticut and another one in Rhode Island, because I originally thought they were both in Connecticut and I was wrong (laughs) and I had to change the title. I am Kate, joined here today by Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. But before we jump into all of that fun, spooky nonsense, I'm going to toss it over to Christine, who will be highlighting our missing person for this episode. Christine? Okay, so today I am highlighting Jacob Maldonado. He has been missing since September 13th, 2023, from Worcester, Massachusetts. He is 15 years old right now, a male, and that is all of the information I could get, but there are some pictures of Jacob, so we will have that posted the day that this episode drops on our Instagram at smalltownmysteriespod. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited for this episode. I I like the spooky season series. I like to let my hair down a little bit. Figuratively, I will not be letting my hair down, actually. So for the third episode of our spooky season series, I decided to cover some real-life cases that have famously been depicted in film. So in past episodes, I've actually covered cases that were fictionalized for the screen. Like, I did the Watcher House case um, and compared it to the Netflix show, or at least the trailer of the Netflix show, because I don't think the show itself was actually out yet. I've also covered some cases that just have a lot of media coverage that blurred the lines of truth like uh pretty recently i did the carly russell case um so for this one i decided to cover a couple of cases that are the basis for popular films so i picked the conjuring movies because i love a good horror movie and the conjuring series is in my humble opinion one of the best recent horror series out there for like straight up haunted horror yeah i feel like i can get behind that Also, I work at a movie theater right now, and I have been seeing advertising for The Nun 2 several thousand times a day for probably a month and a half now. So it's on my mind often. So when I was thinking about what to cover, I was like, you know what? Let's do The Conjuring. Let's cover some cases from The Conjuring. Um, Disclaimer, I'm going to be covering the cases that inspired the first Conjuring movie and the third. I really liked the second Conjuring movie, but it takes place in England. So I... (laughs) I couldn't swing that. I, I didn't make think it made sense. But that movie is also very good. I encourage you to check out that case as well. It's a famous case, a very controversial case. A lot of people think the kids involved in that case made it up completely. So um, some compelling evidence on both sides there. So I also chose to pass over a movie that's actually called A Haunting in Connecticut. So despite the title of this, I am not talking about <laughs> A Haunting in Connecticut, the movie. Um, Even though that is a really good film, and it covers a case that would theoretically fit here, uh, it's technically not part of the Conjuring universe, so I chose to go with, like, the name brand options, even though um, it's the same, like, investigators that worked on that case and whatnot. It was before um, they had, like, the current casting and whatnot. For some background, the Conjuring series has eight, I think nine now, with The Nun 2 being out, movies, including three films under the title The Conjuring, three Annabelle movies, and two movies about the nun, as well as um, The Curse of La Llorona. I recently did a rewatch, so I'm pretty well-versed in the lore and excited to talk about it. And all the movies in the Conjuring universe connect at least tangentially to paranormal investigator Ed and Lorraine Warren. So even, you know, the Annabelle movies where 
you have Annabelle creation. It's about how Annabelle became a haunted doll. They're not in that, but they're related to it in the sense that you know that later on in Annabelle's life cycle, they became involved. So it's important to get some background on Ed and Lorraine. Ed and Lorraine Warren are perhaps the most famous paranormal investigators in American history. I can say that very confidently. They were also involved in the investigation behind a haunting in Connecticut, like I said. So if you are interested in that case, check that one out. And also part of the reason I dodged that particular case uh, is it's one of their more criticized investigations. That's one that people are feel very strongly is uh, fabricated. So I tried to stick with the ones that had a little more better reception, I suppose. So for some background on Ed and Lorraine, uh, none of these cases are actually about them, but they're the source of a lot of the evidence that the investigations yield. So I think it's really important um, to mention them. They are the connecting link between these two cases. Ed, who passed away in 2006, and Lorraine, who passed away in 2019 and consulted on several of the early Conjuring films, founded the first ghost hunting group in the U.S. called NESPR, which stands for New England Society for Psychic Research. Lorraine herself was supposedly psychic. If you've seen any of the films, they've portrayed her as sort of transporting to another space during seances and similar situations. Um, And she's also portrayed as having some sort of sixth sense. Like, she just sort of knows when stuff isn't right. According to Lorraine herself, she claimed she was clairvoyant. So this is pretty accurate. Clairvoyance means that she used a sort of extrasensory perception to learn about objects, people, places, etc. She also referred to herself as a light trance medium. So that tracks with how they show her behavior during seances. As for Ed, he referred to himself as a demonologist, which I don't know about you guys. I'm getting cryptozoology vibes from that. (laughs) For anyone who did not listen to the cryptid episode I did a few months back, my dad has this habit of pointing out that cryptozoology is not a valid field of scientific study whenever someone like mentions it as if it's like a thing. I think he would feel the same way about demonology in, in a lot of senses. Yeah, I guess it's definitely not a science. No, I, I can see Christine is trying to say something nice about demonology. No, I and just it's... looked it up and it's actually, it's not a science. It's not considered even a science no, by them. it's not it's, a science. It's, it's a field of study. It's a, within theology, religious right. doctrine or occultism. So, so sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting field and very niche Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll give him this much. I will give him that. He's a demonologist. Study your demons. Go study your demons, Ed. May you rest in peace. Honestly, when I think of demonology or like demonologist or whatever, all I can think of is supernatural because I'm currently rewatching that right now. Oh, for yeah. For some reason, I'm just well because that's what they do mostly. I mean, there's yeah. is actual demons, not like the religious standpoint. Yeah. Of demon study, but yeah. Okay. Okay. I vibe with demonology. As a concept, (laughs) I vibe with it. So through the course of their work, the Warrens worked with clergy, doctors, police officers, etc. in their investigations. I'm not Catholic, but from my very basic research, I I looked into this um, with who can conduct exorcisms because this is a question I had after watching the movies. Um, There's a few times that it looks like Ed conducts his own exorcisms. And I want to know if that was feasible um if that was like a real thing so what i found first of all is that exorcisms exist in multiple different religions in different forms 
the version that people traditionally know is the Catholic version. Within Catholicism, exorcism is considered a legitimate religious rite, like baptism, marriage, and the Eucharist, and is therefore highly regulated. Not anyone, like, you can't just have just Joe Schmo off the street perform an exorcism. You gotta be a priest. Yeah, it has to be, a, and there's a specific training course. It has to be ordained by, like, a bishop or something like that. Yes, and there's a training course through the Vatican that only a couple hundred priests go through every year. So Ed and Lorraine always maintained that they followed Catholic practice. Lorraine is depicted as very religious in the movies, and that was also true in real life. They utilized exorcisms in their investigations, but always worked with trained Catholic clergy who were certified in that particular area. Uh, As for Ed, he claims that he was the only so-called lay demonologist. So he was like, he thought he was the only person in the world who studied demonology and who wasn't clergy. Which I think is uh, very interesting. He seems to have a bit of an ego. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when I watch the movies, that's the vibe I got from him too. But that could just be Patrick Wilson playing him. Like, I feel like Patrick Wilson has an ego. And I feel like, <laughs> feel like that kind of landed on the character a little bit. I guess. But even that statement, like, I'm the only person in the world who's not certified to do this, who can do this. Right. And so... Some sources claim that Ed Warren was the only non-clergy member who was allowed to perform exorcisms, like that there were exceptions made for him. Um, And the movies definitely depict that. There's a couple times that he performs exorcisms, uh, whether that's a bit of movie magic or like was actually true is unclear. Um, I think it's just an interesting tidbit. I think it's neat. But for what it's worth, Lorraine claims that they never performed exorcisms themselves, that they always worked with trained clergy. And I'll touch on that a bit again further in the episode. So that's just a little bit of background on the Warrens. Uh, They are the common thread here, so I like to include them. They also do have a uh, museum in, I think, Connecticut that has a bunch of artifacts from assorted cases that they've worked, including the Annabelle doll, which is locked in a protective case that has been blessed so that it cannot cause harm. So let's talk about the Perrin family. The basis for the first Conjuring film is a farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, which the Perrin family, a mother, father, and their five daughters, moved into in 1971. The farmhouse was constructed in the 18th century, making it about 200 years old when the Perrins moved in. The entire Perrin family started noticing weird phenomena almost immediately after moving in. The mother, Carolyn, claimed that small piles of dirt would accumulate right after she swept, or that the broom would be in a different location than where she left it, which is pretty benign. Honestly, imagine, like, sweeping something up and then... That's so mean. And then it's still there. Like, it's like the little things. Like, that would piss me off, but it would also be, like, so benign that I wouldn't immediately be like, it's demons. Like, I would just be like, oh, I missed a spot. And I would be mad at myself. Apparently, Carolyn got kind of fed up with this, so she conducted some research into the ownership history of the farmhouse, and she found that it had been within the family of the previous owners for eight generations before the Perrin families bought it. Wow. Yeah, so that's a long-ass time. And unfortunately, that family had been struck by numerous tragedies, including several drownings in the creek on the property, a few hangings in the attic, and at least one documented murder. So... I, I guess of all the places to potentially be haunted, I'd say this is a good contender <laughs> to be haunted. A lot of energy there. 
Yeah. Whole lot of energy going on. It's giving um, Hill House. (laughs) So the family staunchly avoided the dirt floor cellar of the house because it had terrible vibes, Um, which I think any house with a dirt floor cellar has bad vibes, regardless of paranormal activity. (laughs) But I feel like that also has to do with like having to wear shoes inside of your own home. That's not a vibe. And therefore, I wouldn't enjoy it. Bad vibes. Despite their attempts to avoid the basement, the heating system in the house often malfunctioned. So the father, whose name was Roger, often had to go into the cellar to reset it. So not only was it bad vibes down there, but whatever entity was haunting or entities was like, and I'm going to make you go down there even if you don't want to. I think that's such classic haunting ghost motif. Also, allegedly, the girls experienced beds rising off the ground with no explanation, strong smells of rotting flesh, which um, I would imagine would be very unpleasant. But what I really want to know is how they knew to compare it to rotting flesh. Like, how did they know what rotting flesh smelled like so that they could be like, yeah, it smelled like rotting flesh. Like, girl, how do you know what rotting flesh smells like? I have questions. They were kids. Like, you're a child. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I've smelled, like, rotting animals that are in the walls of, like, my old house. That's not a pleasant scent, but, like, I don't think I knew what that was until I was not a kid, like, older. Right. It's like you wouldn't smell something else and immediately be like, you know what this smells like? The rotting animal in my wall. That wouldn't be the first thing I would compare it to. I feel like that's why, I feel like that's a little sus in and of itself, that they were like, yep, it smells like rotting flesh. I'm like, that's a little convenient. So the family called the Warrens, who came in to investigate and performed a seance. In the film, they conducted an exorcism, but Lorraine Warren, who was alive and actively consulted on this film, maintained, as I said, that neither her nor Ed ever conducted any exorcisms, despite rumors to the contrary, because they were not Catholic clergy and therefore not adequately trained or authorized to do so. In reality, Ed and Lorraine held a seance with Carolyn Perrin in an attempt to communicate with some of the more malevolent spirits that were haunting their home. Carolyn's oldest daughter, Andrea, claims that she witnessed this seance. She has written multiple books about the experience. She claims that she watched her mother become possessed. Allegedly, Carolyn's chair rose off of the ground and she began speaking in tongues during the seance. Contrary to what the movie shows, which is that the Warrens solved the haunting, Robert Perrin actually made the Warrens leave because he thought they were causing more harm than good to his wife's mental health. The Perrins lived in the house for nine years before they were able to move in 1980. So they just continued on living there afterward? Yep. They just coexisted with them? And I think one of the movies, it it might be in the first Conjuring and in the second one, but there is a plot line where they send the Warrens away because they're like, you're making her crazy because she's believing this nonsense. And then they like come back and swoop in in the last moment and save lives. And it's it definitely happens in the second one. And I'm trying to remember if it happens in the first one as well. But there's definitely at the end of the movie, obviously, like, oh, all set. No more ghosts. But realistically, they financially could not afford to move out of there for nine more years. So they just kind of had to put up with it. The main demon who appears in the movie as haunting the Perrin farmhouse is named Bathsheba. And there is some historical basis for her existence, even though a lot of it's folklore and local legend, which happens so often uh, in these cases. 
Andrea Perrin claimed that Bathsheba believed herself to be the woman of the house and took offense at Carolyn's presence there. Bathsheba Sherman allegedly lived on the Perrin's land during the 1800s. And local lore claims that she was a Satanist who was involved in the death of a neighbor's child. Whether or not any of that actually happened is up for debate, and trust me, people are debating it. But there is a grave for the name Bathsheba Sherman at the Baptist Cemetery in Harrisville, Rhode Island, suggesting that she was, at the bare minimum, a real person, if not a Satanist murderer that history would have you believe she was. Bathsheba was one of the more aggressive demons in the Perrin household, but apparently there were many. Some annoying, some malevolent, and a lot that were just benign. Either way, a whole lot of ghosties. And no satisfying resolution. So I, I, I know why they changed it for the movie, because it's kind of a bummer to be like, yeah, all this weird shit happened, and then it just kept happening forever. And then we left. It's like, cool. Okay, that's it? Like, <laughs> do, do we have updates on... If the house is still there. That I don't know, actually. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good that's a good question. Um, let me it would have to be really old now. I think it is. Yeah, because you can tour it. But no one lives there. It's mostly just like a tourist attraction now. Yep. It opened to the public in 2019. Hmm. Yeah. So that answers that question. Um so it's not no one currently lives there. It's considered a historical landmark, and you can tour it. It's open for ghost tours. But uh, no satisfying ending to that story, unfortunately. Um, the next one has a more satisfying ending. So, as I said previously, I'm going to skip right over the second Conjuring movie. And let's talk about The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. Historically, this case has been referred to as The Devil Made Me Do It case. So, uh, the movie title is right on. And this case took place in Brookfield, Connecticut, and it was actually the first unlawful murder that took place there in the town's history over 200 years before a murder was committed there. Wow. I think that's kind of impressive, honestly. Honestly, it is. And for what it's worth, Brookfield is relatively small, 18,000 people at the 2020 census. I know the small town part isn't as important to the spooky season episodes, but I wanted to throw that in there as a little, you know, shout out to myself for keeping it small and spooky. Unlike the first and second Conjuring movies, which are exclusively about hauntings of various sorts, this film was actually based on the real-life criminal trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, who, with the help of Ed and Lorraine Warren, was the first person in American history to attempt to prove his lack of guilt, not innocence, lack of guilt, on the basis of demonic possession. And because this is a real case that has real court documents, I can cover this more like how I normally do. So take a deep breath and feel a little grateful for some familiarity. We're back in a courtroom and that's where I'm most comfortable, so let's get into it. Arnie Johnson was 19 years old in 1981 when this case takes place. He worked for a tree services company and lived with his girlfriend, Debbie Glatzel, in an apartment near a dog kennel business run by a man named Alan Bono, who was Debbie's boss. So he owned the apartment that they rented and he was Debbie's boss. Uh, this case was featured on a 2006 episode of the Discovery Channel show A Haunting, and both Arnie and Debbie recounted the events that occurred in the months leading up to the murder. So definitely check that out. It's super interesting to get the first-hand accounts from them. 
According to Arnie and Debbie, who are actually still together all these years later, the Glatzels had recently started renting a new property. And during the process of cleaning it out from the previous tenants, Debbie's younger brother David claimed that he encountered an old man who threatened him and his family with harm if they were to move in. He also recounted experiences with a demonic beast of some sort that threatened to steal his soul. Shortly after these incidents, David began showing unexplained bruises and cuts and experiencing night sweats and convulsions and other odd behavior. The family called in a Catholic priest, obviously, who tried and failed to bless the property. David's odd behavior and weird visions escalated. With David speaking in tongues, reciting biblical passages, he even recited some sections of Paradise Lost in a voice that no one in the family knew. Definitely wasn't his voice. The desperate Glatzel family called in Ed and Lorraine Warren for help. The Warrens determined that David was possessed by multiple demons, and they brought in several exorcism-certified priests to do what they could for David. According to Debbie, during the initial exorcisms, David levitated, and at one point, he predicted the murder that would occur months later. This is known as precognition. And during his possession, David quite literally told the family exactly what the demon was going to do in the coming months. Big if true. Arnie claims that during one of these exorcisms, he attempted to bargain with the demon to save his girlfriend's brother's soul. He allegedly offered his own body in exchange for David's safety. Arnie then claims several encounters with the demon, including one physical attack and one incident in which he lost control of his vehicle and slammed into a tree. Arnie claimed that he believed the demon lived in a well on the Glatzel's property, and he went to confront it. And allegedly in the process made direct eye contact with it. So accounts vary a little bit on like, if the Warrens specifically were like, don't go to the well, don't make eye contact with the demon. Or if they just were like, tread carefully, you know, like you might encounter a demon on this property. Like, Arnie claims that they specifically were like, they had told me not to go to the well, and they told me not to look in its eyes, and I did that. <laughs> Which is like, okay, good job. Uh, but immediately following that encounter was when Arnie began to act bizarrely. He claims that his last lucid moment before the possession began was just before he looked into the well in search of the demon. So that, I mean, his story lines up, at least timeline-wise. David's condition improved, but Arnie started showing odd behavior much like that of David during the beginning of his possession. And Debbie obviously became worried. On February 16th, 1981, Debbie and Arnie got lunch and drinks with her boss, Alan Bono, as well as Arnie's younger sister, Wanda, and Debbie's cousin, Mary, who was nine years old. Alan Bono allegedly became very intoxicated, and Arnie grew agitated with his behavior as they returned to the dog kennels. According to Wanda's testimony... Alan Bono grabbed Mary and refused to release her, which set off Arnie. Wanda recounts that Arnie then began to growl like an animal before drawing a knife and stabbing Alan Bono four to five times in the chest. Oh. Uh, Alan Bono died a few hours later, and according to his autopsy, one particular stab wound stretched all the way from the bottom of his heart to his stomach. Okay. So... Some aggression behind this. Yeah, that's really, that's a lot. Ed and Lorraine Warren immediately involved themselves in this criminal investigation. They had previously warned Brookfield police of the danger stemming from David's possession that, like, 
you know, David's possessed. He could do something unpredictable and that would make the community unsafe. They pretty quickly were like, oh, no, the demon took Arnie's body. At trial, the defense wanted to call the priests involved in David's exorcisms and claim that Arnie was not guilty by reason of demonic possession, essentially claiming that he did not commit the murder because the demon had committed the murder using his body as a puppet, basically. Trial judge Robert Callahan rejected this defense. He explained that such a defense was not viable because there was a lack of proper evidence and allowing it to be argued would be, quote, irrelative and unscientific. So he was the first person to raise this defense, but he was not actually allowed to argue it in court. Instead, the defense implied self-defense. Arnie was nonetheless convicted of first-degree manslaughter, which all things considered is a pretty low charge, um, considering the bare bones of this case as I've covered it. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, but was reportedly a model inmate and served only five years because of his good behavior. That's it. it. That gets me every time. Yeah. Do you have any updates on Arnie as a person? All I could find on Arnie and Debbie is that they're still together. That they married while he was in prison and they're still together. Okay. But I have some more updates on the rest of Debbie's family. So interestingly, David Glatzel and his brother Carl, as well as their parents, sued a book publisher that released a book on the case in 2006 The book contained interview notes of all the involved players, and it stated that David's exorcism was basically a fact, Um, but then the family decided to challenge that. So the two brothers sued for invasion of privacy and lost profits, as Carl claimed that he lost business because of the allegations about his behavior that were included in the book. Carl then published his own book in 2007, where he claims that his parents called the Warrens in earnest when they were concerned for David but that the Warrens instead chose to exploit David's mental health issues for clout. Meaning that David had legitimate mental health issues that were unaddressed that were causing his behavior, and instead of treating him or sending him to someone who could appropriately treat him, the Warrens were like, it's a demon, because they could get attention that way. For her part, Lorraine Warren maintained until her death that six exorcist-certified priests had claimed that David was possessed. This was not just her and Ed. There were other people involved. Debbie and Arnie, who, as I mentioned, are still together all these years later, also corroborate Lorraine's claims of the story and claim that the family members who sued did so purely for financial reasons. Uh, They just wanted money. So the film adaptation of The Devil Made Me Do It is actually quite faithful to the alleged true story. Uh, There's some minor changes. In the movie, Debbie and Arnie live in an apartment that's directly above the dog kennel, but in real life, they were separate locations. Alan Bono's behavior before his murder in the movie, he was inappropriate with Debbie rather than with, like, a nine-year-old, which I think uh, is some creative liberty that I'm okay with because, obviously. Same here. I think that's a good choice. No one wants to see abuse of a child, even in a fictionalized context. So I guess to to close this out, I I think I've always been drawn to the Warrens cases, partly because of, you know, this really great series that was made and continues to be made about some of these cases, but also because of their strong ties to New England. They're very much New England based. A lot of their cases were local. This just felt like a natural choice for spooky New England. I feel like you can't talk about spooky New England without talking about Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, I hope all of you enjoyed And as of me writing this, all three Conjuring films are available to stream on HBO Max, which I think is just Max now. 
uh, if you'd like to check them out, which I highly recommend. They are worth watching and it's a fun afternoon. So that is my episode. Thank you. Ooh, thank you. Yeah. I didn't know a lot about the backstory of all of them. I've obviously watched, I think, I want to say all three of the Conjuring movies. I remember the last one, so I'm sure I watched the second one. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I think when it came out had like creeped on their Wikipedia page slightly, Mm -hmm. but I never really like went too far into any of the cases. So it was cool to hear about. I feel like when they first came out and I watched them, you know, not, not immediately when they came out, but like. At some point in the following years, they have that little blurb at the beginning that says, like, the following film was inspired by true events. And I was like, okay. Because mm-hmm. how many movies do that? And what they've really done is they've taken, you know, some facts and then they've fudged everything else to make it an entertaining film. So I took that with a grain of salt. But somewhere along the line, I started reading about the Warrens. And then it was like, oh, that's right. They're the two in the Conjuring movies. Those are their cases. And I was like, oh, but if they're real people, then the cases must be based on something. Like, there has to be some sort of factual basis here. And just that was one of the rabbit holes I fell into um, at some point in the past few months was just rewatching all the Conjuring movies and learning all about the real stories there. And I think it's so interesting. Mm. That being said, Annabelle, true basis for Annabelle, I believe. Well, Annabelle was a retcon because if you watch Annabelle... And then you watch Annabelle Creation, which is a prequel. They completely retconned Annabelle's existence. Yeah, I've watched both of those. Yeah, that I watched those movies like one right after the other. And I was so confused watching Annabelle Creation. I was like, are we forgetting that the whole point of Annabelle was that this was a woman who joined a cult and then murdered her parents? Yeah, And she's the one who possesses the Annabelle doll. Because in Annabelle Creation, it's a girl at an orphanage. And I'm like, uh, okay, so that doesn't quite add up. Makes for perhaps a more interesting story, but I have questions. Alas, very interesting. I don't think I've seen The Nun. I haven't either. I have listened to the post-credit music of The Nun 2 while I did a theater check at 12.30 a.m. last weekend. Do not recommend that at all. Terrifying experience. But I'll have to check those ones out too at some point. And I never saw The Curse of La Llorona. I feel like that one didn't get great reviews, but it's all in the same universe. So uh, maybe I'll look into it because just because some of them are bad doesn't mean they all will be. Some of them are great. Well, thank you all for tuning in to this special edition of Small Town Mysteries for our spooky season series, Haunted New England. And we have one more episode coming up in this series for you. So tune in for that. It'll be at a week from the day you are listening to this. Assuming you are listening to this on the day it comes out. If you're not, (laughs) it comes out a week after this came out. Um, And we'll have our regularly scheduled episode coming out in between as well. So you get two episodes per week from Small Town Mysteries for the entire month of October. Double Trouble. We love it. Hope you love it. Leave us a five-star review if you love it. Follow us on Instagram at Pod. If you live in a small town that has creepy stories that you want to tell us about, DM us. We love to hear from you. Uh, And we love listener suggestions. They are so beneficial to us. They are our bread and butter because we want to know what you guys want to hear about. So hit us up, tune in next week, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Come spiral with us next week. Bye. Bye!
started differently and ended differently. <laughs>